0: Hey, guys, just want to let you know about an exciting episode we have coming up. And by the way, coming up this week, this Friday, December 11th, we'll be releasing an episode entitled Three Focal Points for Newlyweds. Three Focal Points for Newlyweds and just three areas that when you're a newlywed that you should focus on. That may be a little bit of a difficulty, some tips, and really just a very applicable episode. And I'm saying newlyweds, but really it's for any marriage. I think you can apply these principles in these three areas. And I have a guest for that episode. That would be my wife, Tabitha. She joined me on the podcast, and we were able to record the first part of that episode. We'll release the second part on December 18th. And just a great podcast episode filled with personal stories. Some maybe that I didn't want shared. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. And uh, filled with personal stories, but I'm excited. They're just applicable. I think it could be a really great episode. If you know somebody who is recently married or somebody who, hey, maybe they just need some things on marriage, um, this would be the episode for them. So you'll see on this Friday, December 11th, 3, Focal points for newlyweds. Make sure you don't miss out on that episode. We got a lot of exciting things coming up. Merry Christmas to you. And we also have a great Christmas episode and Christmas Eve episode coming up that I'm excited about. Of course, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So make sure to keep an eye out for those, but especially three focal points for newlyweds this Friday. And here is today's episode.
1: And if you're going to win souls, you've got to love souls in spite of their meanness. In spite of the way they look, in spite of everything, you've got to seek to bring souls to Jesus Christ because you love them, because Jesus loved them, and because Jesus died for them. And you're trying to bring them to the Son of God.
0: What another beautiful day to be here with you here on Sandy Creek Stirrings, and once again, I'm glad to have you here on the podcast and to join me for another episode here today on a Tuesday, Apologetics Day, learning to defend the Bible, defend the faith, learning to defend our beliefs, and to defend true doctrine, and that's something very important. And you know, as I, as I talk about apologetics, I want to be very, very, very clear Apologetics has been around for a very long time as far as defending the faith and learning how to defend it and things of that sort. It's been around for a very long time. But if you don't get Jesus to people, you've missed it. Uh, If you don't focus on actually being a soul winner and telling people how to go to heaven when they die, you have missed it. If all you do is you sit home and you study and you study out apologetics and you listen to the Tuesdays on Sandy Creek Stirrings and you study out all these things and you know how to defend every single topic, but you don't learn how to tell people about Jesus Christ and how to tell them how to go to heaven, you have missed it. You've missed it altogether. You don't get the point. You've missed the boat. The point of apologetics is only for these situations where somebody has genuine questions. Sometimes people will not come to the Lord in one scenario, and sometimes they do have questions. I've seen and heard the testimonies of people who they came to God simply because they were trying to disprove God. And in all their studies, they came across people who knew how to defend God, and they eventually got saved. For them, it took time. But here's the deal. If you've missed... If you've missed actually just soul winning and talking to people about the Lord and telling them about Christ, you have missed it. So that's the most important thing you can learn to do. And I want to be very clear on that here on Sandy Creek Stirrings about apologetics. I think it's very important, but do not miss the main thing. As Dr. Scott Cottle said, in our interview episode with him, he said, We need to make sure we keep the main thing the main thing, and that is winning souls to Jesus Christ. And so that's the most important thing you can do in your life. Now, today we have a rather large topic. It'll probably take us a little bit to get through it. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to skip all the preliminaries today and dive right into the episode. Of course, you saw the title. And before we dive into the actual title content, I want to talk to you about this real quick how do you create a false doctrine you say that's an interesting question it is how do you create a false doctrine how do you create one i'm going to give you the five step plan on how to create a false doctrine you say that makes no sense we're learning how to defend true doctrine why am i learning how to create a false doctrine i think you need to know this number 1 how do you create a false doctrine number 1 you formulate an opinion or theory before finding it in the bible You formulate an opinion or theory before finding it in the Bible. We're about to, as soon as we're done giving you the five points, I'm going to give you a a practical example on this. So, uh, you formulate an opinion or theory before finding it in the Bible. Number two, you take verses out of context. Number three, you fail to study the meaning, context, and intention of a verse of Scripture. Number four, you allow it to contradict Bible truths you deem unnecessary to have a firm stand on. And number five, you allow it to define other passages of Scripture. That is how you create a false doctrine. I'm going to tell it again. Formulate a theory or opinion before finding it in the Bible. Number two, take the verses out of context. Number three, fail to study the meaning, um, meaning, context, and intention of a verse or word in Scripture. Number four, allow it to contradict Bible truths you deem unnecessary to have a firm stand on. And number five, allow it to define other passages of Scripture. That is how you create a false doctrine. Now, let me give you, that to you in a practical example. Alright, Everything I'm about to, to say and statements I make just in this section are not true. I'm just putting how to create a false doctrine, a practical example. Let's say that my false doctrine I want to pass to you is that God is not against homosexuality. So there's my first point. Number one, I formulate an opinion before going to the Bible, okay? I haven't gone to the Bible on it. My theory is, my opinion is, God is not against homosexuality. I form that opinion before consulting the truth of Scripture, Um, you know, and so now what do I have to do? If I'm going to be a Christian and I want to keep that theory, now I have to go find Bible passages to back up my opinion, right? That's what I have to do. So instead of finding Scripture and basing our belief off Scripture, now I'm going to try and cookie-cut the Bible to fit my theory, my theory that God is not against homosexuality, which let me say, and because I feel really weird saying that statement, let me say, God is against homosexuality. But for the sake of our example, this is the statement we're making. So I go to the Bible, I'm not trying to find out what the Bible says, but trying to cookie-cut the Bible to fit my belief. So number two, what I do is, is, as that statement we made before, I begin to take verses out of context. So I go to Galatians 3.26. Uh, Galatians 3.26 says that we are all God's children if we believe in God. Uh, specifically, it says, quote, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And so I look at you, you're like, no, God's against homosexuality. I'm like, no, we are, God is for homosexuals because we are all God's children. Now, clearly, um, if you know anything about scripture. I am ripping that verse out of context. Um, for one, it's a reference to the Galatian church. Two, in context, it's establishing even how to become a child of God. Um, truly, when, when uh, Paul is talking to the Galatian church, he's, he's telling them how to become a child of God. It's not just believing there's a God, but asking Jesus Christ to come into your heart and save you by faith. And so I'm really just ripping that verse out of context, but that's what I have to do because I'm trying to create a false doctrine. And then number three, as I continue my quest to prove my, my theory, my opinion, I fail to study the meaning, context, and intention of a verse or a word in Scripture. So for instance, I go to James chapter 2 and verse 3, um, where that passage says, and I'll read it to you, it says, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. And I look at you, and you know, the Bible says that we should respect people who wear gay clothing. You know, that's another—that backs up my opinion that God is for homosexuals because we're supposed to respect those that have gay clothing, you know? That's what the Bible says. Well, it that, that's a ridiculous argument because when you see the word gay in the Bible, it doesn't mean the same thing that gay means today. Um, in the Bible, the word gay simply meant happy. It's implying—here in James chapter 2, verse 3, it's implying rich or extravagant clothing in this passage. And also, once again, when I say that that opinion— I'm ripping another verse out of context, because James is actually reprimanding them because they're being a respecter of persons. He says, you have respect to him that worth gay clothing, and you, you, you put him in the best seats, and you put the people in poor clothing down in these seats, and he says, that's wrong. You shouldn't, you shouldn't judge people by their clothing. You shouldn't give the best seats to those who are, who are happy or rich clothing. But I'm forming a false doctrine, so I've, I've formulated my opinion. I ripped Galatians 3.26 out of context. I did not look up the meaning and context and the original intention of James 2.3. Now, number four, what am I going to do in forming this false doctrine? I'm, gonna, I'm going to allow my belief to contradict Bible truths because I deem it unnecessary. So, for instance, when you when you debate me and you quote Leviticus twenty thirteen, you know that says, you know, if a man also lie with mankind as he lieth with a woman, both of them have committed abomination. You say, see it clearly, God says it's wrong, and I look at you and I say, well, um, no, because that's Old Testament law, and you know, Christ did away with that on the cross. It's all done, all over. You know, goodbye, goodbye, Old Testament. <laughs> that that's just you know. That's ridiculous. We know from a simple study that obviously in Leviticus 2013, this is a moral law. God didn't do away with the moral laws, and God says that an abomination will forever be something that is an abomination to God. So, But, you know, I'm forming a false doctrine, so I don't have to believe what the Bible says. The Bible has to believe what I say, or say what I say. So, um, And then number five, what do I do? Well, I allow it to define other passages of Scripture. So, for instance, when we go to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you say they were destroyed because of homosexuality and other things. According to Ezekiel, i say, no, 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 no. They were, they were destroyed because some of them were prostitutes. That's what it's actually talking about. You know, some of the people there were prostitutes. None of them were homosexuals because, you know, God is for homosexuality. And did you notice the progression there? Did you notice the pro- progression of a, how a false doctrine is formed? And some people may say that's ridiculous, but how many times, think about it, how many times have you heard a, a theory, a belief, something that you're like, what in the world? And that's where it all started. They formed an opinion. They began ripping verses out of context. They allowed it to define the Bible instead of the Bible defining their beliefs. It's It's ridiculous absolutely ridiculous. It's how you form a false doctrine. And I want to lay the foundation for that today, because I feel that as we go into this subject, it's important for you to understand how to form a false doctrine. Because if we can go back and trace those steps, probably dealing with a false doctrine. Now, today, this is a, I'm going to call it like it is from the very beginning. It's a false doctrine. It is a false theory It is provable to be false, and here's the deal why I would take a whole episode to deal with this subject, is because it's dangerous. You say, how is it dangerous? Because it affects your belief on so many other Bible doctrines. If you believe the gap theory, it's going to change your views on angels, on the sons of God, on creation, on the flood, on the age of the earth, on evolution, on the beginning of sin, on how death entered the world, on Satan. I mean, it's going to change your beliefs and your doctrine on every single one of those subjects if you believe in the gap theory. And frankly, if you believe the gap theory, you're going to contradict a lot of other Bible passages when it comes down to those doctrines. This is the gap theory. Now, I'll be honest with you. Most people that I have listened to preach and teach on this topic the same way. They start off saying, you know, know, I don't believe the gap theory. I believe the gap fact. And, you know. Because if you say it's a fact, it's automatically a fact. And uh, they say that, you know, I don't believe in the gap theory, I believe in the gap fact. And then at some point during their message, their sermon, their study, their lesson, whatever they want to call it, at some point they'll say something similar to this, you know. "Uh, This isn't something worth fighting over, you know. This isn't something we're going to be dogmatic on. This isn't a hill we're going to die on, you know. We can still fellowship together even though, you know, I believe the gap theory and you don't. It's not something, you know, that I'm going to be super dogmatic on. But then in that same message, that same lesson, they go on to adamantly teach from the Bible why it's true. Let me ask you this. If they're going to teach it as Bible truth, why don't they have the guts just to stand up for it and say, no, it is a hill I'm willing to die on. It is something I'm going to be dogmatic on because clearly the Bible says it. Because here's the deal. If you're going to teach something from the Bible, why wouldn't you be willing to take a firm stand on it? Why wouldn't you be willing to be dogmatic about it? Why isn't it a hill you're worth dying for? I'll tell you what, there's a lot of things, everything, yeah, I'll put this out here right now, everything that the Bible says, I'm willing to die on that hill because I'm willing to die for the Bible. So if I'm going to teach something, then yes, it's a hill I'm willing to die on. Otherwise, listen very closely, otherwise I'm not going to spend an hour preaching to you on something that I'm not going to be dogmatic on. Why would I take an hour to, to... preach to you, and teach you something that, well, it's not a hill we're willing to die on. What a waste of an hour. What a waste of time. What a waste of your time. What a waste of my time. It's ridiculous. And so you can tell I'm pretty fired up about this subject, and I'm I'm not super fired up about it. I just, I can see the danger, and I don't want people to be in danger. Now, let me give you this. There are two major reasons why a true biblical Christian has to stand against the gap theory. Two major reasons. Number one, because the gap theory violates several basic Bible truths. And when I say basic, I literally mean basic. I don't mean in depth. I don't mean the meat of the word. I mean the milk of the word. It violates several very basic Bible truths. And so obviously we will discuss these in, um, later on as we continue. But here's the deal to violate a Bible doctrine, it automatically makes it a false doctrine or a false belief. It should never. It should never be taught in a plausible manner, because if it cannot be true, it violates the Word of God. And because the gap theory violates a Bible doctrine in not one area, but several areas, it makes it something more than just a a trivial belief or, oh, that's just his conviction. No, this is a false doctrine because it contradicts the Bible. Listen, you can't come to this and say, you know, well, the Bible says this, this, and this, and backs up the gap theory, when it clearly contradicts it and say, well, that's just my personal, you know, interpretation. You have your own personal interpretation. That's not the way it works. And because, number two, why you should stand against the gap theory is because if it's something that violates basic Bible truths, then it's false, and it should be uniformly taught as such by all Christians. You say, why? Because the Bible says that the Bible— the Bible itself, is of one interpretation. 2 Peter chapter 1, of verse 20 says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. You can't come to something that the Bible explicitly talks about and says, well, I believe it says this, and for me to say, well, I believe it says this, not when the Bible's clear on it. And some people would say, well, Brother Josh, you know, the Bible isn't clear on the gap theory. Um, I beg to differ, because if it contradicts the Bible— It's a false doctrine. Now, there may be some out there listening. You say, I have no idea what you're talking about up to this point. You're about to lose me. What is the gap theory? Never heard it before in my life. And frankly, I've come across a lot of new Christians who have never heard of the gap theory. That tells you something right there. But anyway, um, let me go ahead and give you what is the gap theory. What is the gap theory? In 1788, James Hutton, he was a Scottish scientist. He wrote a book entitled The Theory of the Earth. It was truly one of the first widely published books on why the earth could be hundreds of thousands um, to even millions of years old. One of the very first books, Theory of, of the Earth in 1788. And he was a Scottish, quote-unquote, scientist, as the Bible would say, science Falsely so called. And um, but so there was a another man here in the story. He was a Scottish, not a scientist, but a Scottish Scottish theologian. His name was Thomas Chalmers. And in response to this, supposed quote unquote new discovery, he had a he had a conflict within his beliefs. Okay? He couldn't account for this new age of the earth because frankly to him and you go back and read his writings it didn't fit in the bible and so in response he invented yes he invented the gap theory wrote his reviews and premises based on the these new theories in several articles and eventually compiled them into a book in 1814 he was the first one to introduce this gap theory with nobody teaching it before him in history Nobody. Now, I have heard people say, well, actually, you know, Augustine, you know, back from the fifth century taught it. Um, no, he didn't. They'll say that, but they won't actually quote Augustine because when you quote Augustine in context, he didn't believe the gap theory. You won't find somebody before 1814 teaching in writing. You won't find anybody who taught the gap theory. I have heard. I have heard some preachers say, all right, I've heard some preachers say who they, well, there was somebody before 18 who taught it. And I say, well, name one. They can't name one. I had one, one guy say, you know, that, uh, you know that. well, that actually there was people who taught it, and, um, but he could never produce one single source. You won't find it before 1814. Um, in 1859, of course, Charles Darwin shocked the world when he wrote his famed book, Origin of Species. It was really kind of based off of Scottish scientist James Hutton's book from 1788, uh, Theory of the Earth. And in this, of course, Charles Darwin, he publicized The Age of the Earth, being millions of years old, publicized The Theory of Evolution. And ever since, there's been evolution versus creationism. And um, it's a very interesting, very interesting debate. And um, But that's really where the Gap Theory came into existence. Now, let me give you the basic beliefs of the Gap Theory. Now there are some of some gap theorists and by the way there's there's a bunch of different gap theories. And so some 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 gap theorists gap factists whatever they want to call themselves um they don't hold to every point of these beliefs. But in its design this is what the basic beliefs of the gap theories are originally. Um whether someone holds to these points or not it doesn't necessarily matter because here's the deal is you'll find a day to believe that any gap existed between Genesis one and two. Um, just as 1-1 one, one, and just as 1-2 we uh, will prove today is simply a false belief to begin with. Now, I don't want you to get in your head that it's a false belief. I want you to be able to prove that it's a false belief. So I'm not saying that as a statement to go ahead and make my first argument. I'm just saying by the end of today, it'll be proven that it's not true. So what is the gap theory? Number one, God created everything in Genesis 1-1. Let me go ahead and read just a few verses of Scripture. Uh, You know these well. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1-2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. There was light. Verse 4, And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. Verse 5, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And, of course, you've got the continuation of the six days of creation. So what a gap theorist believe is they believe that God created everything, everything in Genesis one one. Now they also believe that there is a gap of time between Genesis one one and Genesis one two, and it it can consist of really, you know, depending on who you talk to, it consists of hundreds of thousands to billions of years. This would, in fact, even account for the evolutionary theory of the age of the earth. And let me be very clear, there are a lot of gap theorists who do not believe in evolution. Good for them. Um, But most of them will say the earth is millions of years old. Most gap theorists will say the earth is millions of years old. So what happened in this gap is that Satan and the angels were created. And then Satan lives in heaven, he rebels against God, he's cast out of heaven, and there's this prehistoric man living on earth, and and God, because Satan takes over heaven and, and turns it into desolation, God has to destroy everything in this earth that, you know, exists between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And so... Satan causes sin to take over the earth, and God has to destroy everything in it, including animals, including kingdoms, including even the prehistoric man. And so what God does is he destroys the world and everything in it by a worldwide flood. And then he freezes everything and keeps it there until, and I quote from a preacher, I heard preach on this subject, um, until he decided what to do with it, end quote. And let me just put this little statement right here real quick. uh, God doesn't do something without knowing what he's going to do with it. God doesn't make a decision like, boom, you know, that guy's dead. Now I got to figure out what I'm going to do. No, God never makes a decision like that. God doesn't send a worldwide flood, freeze everything for a million years and say, "Uh, well, I don't know what to do with it. And he's there sitting like, you know, Winnie the Pooh bear. Think, 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 think for a million years. That's not the way God works. So According to the Gap there is. he then freezes everything, keeps it there until, quote, until he decided what to do with it, end quote. And this is why Genesis 1 and verse 2 is void, because God destroyed the earth and everything in it. And then next, they believe that God recreates the earth, starting in Genesis chapter 1. And at the end of verse 2, or the beginning of verse 3, and then in Genesis 1-6, when God is dividing the firmament, all right, Genesis 1-6 specifically says, and God said, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. When um, God begins separating the firmament, what he's doing is that ice, you know, that he covered everything with when he froze it until he decided what to do with it. He's turning the ice back into water. He's separating it from the waters in heaven, the waters on earth, you know, it might even account for the ice age. And so that is what a gap theorists believe. And then they believe that God, not necessarily recreate, you know, he doesn't, they would call it the six days of not creation, but the six days of recreation. God's recreating everything starting. And really, I think it's verse three is when they truly believe it starts. That is, in essence, the gap theory. Now we're already at 22 minutes, according to what I've got on my timer. And so, man, that went, that took a really lot longer than I thought it would. So, Let's go ahead and give some problems with the gap theory. Give some problems with the gap theory. I'm not going to go over every single passage that a gap theorist used today. Here's the deal if I can prove that it contradicts Bible scripture in even one place, then it cannot be true. But I'm going to give you more than that today. So here's, here's problems with the gap theory. Number one, it is an invented theory showing up for the first time over 1,700 years after the completion of the Bible. It is an invented theory showing up for the very first time over 1,700 years after the completion of the Bible. You say, what does that matter? Because that is proof you don't learn this by reading the Bible for yourself. You have to be taught this theory, or you have to formulate an opinion without studying the Scripture for what it truly says. You have to be taught this belief. And you say, how do you know that? Because I can take you to every single church member that we have here, that we have led to the Lord. I can take you to church members who I have led to the Lord across um, uh, uh, the—not that I've led the Lord, but other people have led the Lord across, the United States, and I could take it to them, and when they read the Bible for the first time, they never read the gap there. They never did. They never saw it, because you don't find it reading it for yourself, because the Bible doesn't talk about it. Not one time will you see where the Bible says there's a gap between Genesis chapter one and verse one, and Genesis chapter one and verse two. You won't find it one single time. What you will find is men who, men and women who, um, have to take passages out of context and they have to try and fit verses in that really, they don't fit. They just do not fit. And that's why, to me, I think it's so shocking that so many people believe this. It's crazy. It's crazy. You have to be taught this. I was talking with one guy, and he said, you know, well, actually, no, 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 no. I, I, I believed it. You know, I, I, I had that thought when I started reading it. And I was sitting there like, that's ridiculous. There's no way. And so I I mean, what are you gonna debate? I can't tell that guy what he thought. And so he said, you know, I believed it when I read it. And he said he's continuing his story and later on he's like, Well, I had this guy who was telling me when I first got saved, you know, about the gap theory and these other things. I was thinking, wait a second, you just said a second ago that you believed it when you read it, but now you're telling me you got a friend who influenced you. Um, those don't add up. So the the there's no one ever before eighteen fourteen to produce the gap theory. No one. It's an invented theory. And no one taught it. And here's the reason why. Because it wasn't in Scripture. It just wasn't there. That's why Thomas Chalmers had a trouble fitting it in, because it didn't fit with the Bible. That's why he had to write a book on it. So why he had to write a book on it. So, number one, when talking about the gap theory, it's an invented theory. It is an invented theory. You don't arrive at this conclusion unless somebody taught it to you. Every single time, somebody has to teach you the gap theory. All right, and as we go into number two problems with the gap theory, here's what we need to realize. Genesis 1-1 is not necessarily creation itself. The verse that says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. It's not creation itself. It's simply an introduction of what is about to happen in the next few verses. In the beginning God created the earth doesn't mean like, boom, there was the earth. No, it's just simply telling you what's about to happen. God doesn't want you to doubt in any place at any time anywhere who created the earth. In the beginning, God created it, and here's how he did it. And the Bible continues. In fact, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, let me read that verse to you. Again, if you happen to be writing this down, that's Exodus 20, verse number 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that, it, all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. God created everything in six days. And so what you find is when God began creation, He did everything in six days. You will find that there is not a single item there is not a single item that was not created. There is not a single anything. there's not a single entity that was created outside of those six days. And here's the reason why: For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. You, you say, "Wait a second. you know some people believe that God created the angels before the six days. That's not true. Where do the angels live? They live in heaven. Um, verse 11 of Exodus chapter 20 says, "For in six days the Lord made heaven." And then if you continue, it says, and all that in them is. Would that include the angels? Yes, that would include the angels. That includes Satan. That includes, yeah, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 is very conclusive. Nothing in the heavens and the earth could have been created outside of the six days. All were created in six days. Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1 is not creation itself. It is simply an introduction of what is about to happen in the following verse, and I want to give you this real quick on that subject. The the grammar alone of Genesis chapter 1 verses 3 through 31, okay, is called in the Hebrew, it's called vav consecutive. In Hebrew grammar, and I know this is getting a little deep here, but in Hebrew grammar, it's called vav consecutive, meaning when the word vav is used, followed by a verb, it denotes a sequence, a sequence of events. They're happening back to back, boom, boom, boom. For instance, um, vav consecutive would be like, and God said, and God saw. In Genesis 1-2, though, we have a vav disjunctive, which is vav followed by a nonverb, This by grammar alone, listen very closely, this by grammar alone indicates that what follows below in this vav disjunctive is a comment on what has been previously said. It's similar to how we use parentheses. You say, what am I trying to say? I'm simply trying to say that chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Verse two is vav disjunctive, meaning, meaning, listen very closely, meaning, It's the same way we would use parentheses. It's simply a comment on verse number one. Simply a comment on verse number one. You'll find within Hebrew grammar alone, there's no way there can be a gap. Just in Hebrew grammar, there's no way there can be a gap. So Genesis 1-2, when we get to that verse where it says, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, They say, you know, God created the heaven and the earth in verse number one, and then now in verse number two, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. You know, that refers to when God had to destroy everything. No, no. It's simply a comment on verse number one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Well, what was God starting with? Well, he was starting something without form, meaning it was formless. It had not been formed. That's, that's what that word means. When it says without form, it means like it's formless. It had not been formed. So for people to say, you know, God recreated the earth because it was already there, they don't understand what the words without form mean, meaning they had not been formed yet, i.e., they hadn't been created yet. Had not been created yet. Void means empty, means unfilled, means uninhabited. There's nothing there. They're not only formless, but it's void. It's emptiness. Emptiness. Those two words, those two phrases, they don't equal destruction. They equal, there is the nothingness of nothingness. That's what they equal. God is starting with literally nothing. God goes on to say that the deep, which is a reference to the abyss of all this nothingness, is darkness. So now you've got nothingness and darkness. It's in no way to applying, applying destruction. It's, what it's doing is it's implying the great act of creation by God. Who could take nothing and form something? That's how incredible our God is. By the way, evolution and science can't take nothing and form something out of it. That's the problem with evolution. And we'll have a whole episode on evolution one day, but you cannot scientifically recreate and have nothing and create something out of it. Only God can do that. But by saying the earth was already there, you're taking this God and saying, well, he can't actually form something out of nothing. It's already there. Now, as we continue, we've got, so far I've given three reasons, three problems with the gap theory. Let's give you a fourth one. To say Satan caused sin and destruction on earth before Adam violates a biblical truth. And yes, there are a lot of preachers, unfortunately, I have no idea why, who teach that there was this pre, um, pre-Adam human race and prehistoric man, and God had to kill them all because of all their sin, and God had to destroy them. To say Satan caused sin and destruction on earth before Adam, it violates a biblical truth. You say, why? Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says that by one man's sin, death entered the world. It specifically says, wherefore, as by one man's sin entered the world. How many men? One man, sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Some say, yes, I agree with this. Adam was the first one to bring death to this new world. That's how gap theorists will get around it. They'll say, well, you know, this is a new world. You know, this, that was the old world, and then when God recreated everything, this is the new world, and Adam was the first person to bring, you know, sin to this new world. Well, once again, they violate another Bible doctrine. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first. Can there be anything before the first? No. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Um, God did away with the first earth when? Not in Genesis, but in Revelation. In Revelation, that's when God does away with the first earth, meaning there cannot be an earth, meaning that there, if gap theorists teach that there is sin and death before Adam, they violate a Bible doctrine. Romans chapter 5 verse 14 says nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses not before Adam. Not before Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22 says for an as as in Adam all die to say that there was death or sin before Adam. Is to contradict a very plain, undebatable Bible doctrine. You have to get rid of it. It does not fit. You cannot have it and say that you believe the Bible and say that there was sin or death on earth before Adam. You violate clearly the Word of God. Here's the other thing. The Bible says number five a problem with the gap theory. Number five, the Bible says that Adam was the first man. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse forty-five says, and so it is written, the first man Adam, the the first man. Adam, the, the let me say that again, the first man, Adam. Can there be anything before the first? No, he is the first. By definition, he is the first man. So where are they saying that there's men on earth before Adam? It doesn't fit. And if they try to throw out this thing, well, you know, this is a new earth. We already, we already said that. Violates Revelation chapter 21 and verse number one. Here's another problem with the gap theory. The Bible records one single flood in the Bible, not two. You have to try and interpret your own interpretation in there to try and make any of the flood passages of the Bible talk about something other than Noah's flood. You have to try and read it in there. Because every single flood passage in the Bible can be and should be directly applied to Noah's flood. And here's another thing. Number seven, to believe the earth is millions of years old is to contradict the Bible. To believe the earth is millions of years old is to contradict the Bible. The earth was five days old when Adam was created. Five days old. Five. Literally five days old. Five 24-hour days old. And so we have the years of Adam's life are recorded in the Bible, as they are for most of his descendants. Through this, we can determine that the earth is somewhere around 6,000, 8,000, definitely under 10,000 years old. To believe otherwise is to not believe the Bible. Therefore, if you want to preach and teach that the earth is millions of years old, whether you believe evolution or not, you're violating something that is clearly within Scripture you're violating it. And for these people who give, you know, evidence for the earth being millions of years old, we can give you proofs of a young earth. Uh, you got radiocarbon and diamonds, you got recession of the moon, you got earth's decaying magnetic field, you got dinosaur soft tissue, you got anthropology or human population growth, you've got tightly folded rock strata, and much, much more that proves that the earth is young. It proves the earth is young, and that kind of goes along the the evolution versus creationism um, debate, and we won't get into that today. But the point is, these guys who are out there teaching that the earth is millions of years old because you know it fits within the gap theory, that's not believing the Bible. That's siding more with evolution than siding with God. And so, let me give you something real quick. A lot of gap theorists, and that's what I'm going to refer to them as gap theorists, they will play the trump card. Not like President Trump, but, you know, Trump, the winning card. They'll play the Trump card when it comes to the gap theory and say, how are you going to answer this? And typically at some point they'll bring up Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 28. Um, The Bible says, And God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve, and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Hmm replenish. And they'll look at you and they'll say, well, why does the Bible say replenish? That means that there were people on it before Adam and Eve, if they're replenishing the earth, they're filling it again. That's what they'll say. But here's what you must understand. Remember our original example we started off with today, James two three. You know, gay doesn't mean what it used to. It's got a different definition now. That may be hard for some to believe, but replenish, it doesn't mean the same thing now that it used to. You say, what do you mean? Well, the King James Bible was finished in um, 1611. Of course, it had a few revisions, not changing words, not changing structure, just simply updating the spelling and the way words look. For instance, if you try to read a 1611 King James Bible, you couldn't read it. The F's look like S's. the, uh, The words looked very different. Spelling was different. And so in 1769, we have the Bible that we have today. Here's the deal. In 1792, Samuel Johnson did a Dictionary of the English Language. 1792. That's 23 years after the completion of the Bible. If you were to look up in his dictionary, which you can do online, look it up, look it up. If you were to look up the word replenish in 1792, 23 years after the completion of the King James Bible, here's what you'll find. Two. Um, here's what you'll find for the definition of replenish. Here's what it says to f- to stock to fill to complete to be stocked to completely fill you won't find anywhere where the definition is to refill or to fill again back in 1792 23 years after the completion of the bible you hold in your hands or should be holding in your hands 23 years you'll find that the definition it didn't mean to refill it simply meant to fill That's all it meant. It didn't mean to refill. It meant to fill. In 1828, which is um, Noah Webster's dictionary, the year he did his dictionary, which is considered the gold standard of dictionaries, in 1828, he added a secondary definition, secondary definition to his dictionary nearly 60 years after the completion of the KJV, Um, but you'll find it still did not replace the primary definition. When you look in the 1828, you grab the big green dictionary off the shelf if you have one. I do. You grab the big green dictionary. The primary definition within that 1828 dictionary is to fill. It's still not to refill, it's to fill. The secondary definition, a new definition that's now added is replenish, can also mean to refill. But here's what you'll find. When you find in the primary definition, to fill, you'll find a reference to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. No Webster is even telling you what the definition is. It simply means to fill, to fill. This proves that at the completion of the King James Bible, a perfect translation, the sole definition of replenish had nothing to do with refilling, but it simply meant to fill. It simply meant to fill, and that's it. Now, today we've gone a little bit longer than normal, and um, they use some other passages such, to, such as 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 4-7. through They use Isaiah 14, 12-17. They use Jeremiah 4, 27 I will tell you, Okay. Now, don't take my word for it. Look it up for yourself. But I will tell you that every single one of those passages are pulled out of context. They are tried to cookie-cut into what a gap theorist believes they do not fit. Um, they're clear explanation for those passages. And I have, I literally have notes sitting right in front of me. If you would like those notes, I would be more than glad to send them to you. Just simply contact me through either our Facebook page or go to SandyCreekStrings.com, click our contact page, and um, give me your email. And I will email those notes to you. I have no problem with that. I do have them on hand, but uh, for sake of time today, I'm not going to talk about them. But, but here's what the gap theory really comes down to. And I want you to get this point. I give you a quote from a pastor in Florida. Um, his name is James Knox, and I'm not saying anything that's not known. It's um, you know known across the YouTube platform, known in some of his writings that he uh, teaches and preaches on the gap theory. And uh, so it's not like I'm saying anything that's unknown, that's not published and out there. But um, he preaches the gap theory, and he says this quote, and I really want you to listen closely and to get this part. He said, here's the part that just doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand how you can believe that God sat in the dark and did nothing for 87 trillion eons and did nothing until 6,000 years ago. That's just unbelievable. Now, I don't know if you caught it or not, but here's the problem with that statement, and I believe this applies to most, now this is my opinion, but I believe this applies to most of the gap theorists out there. He's trying to take... This God who is infinite, who is uncomprehendable, this God who is before us, this God who is after us. This God who is eternal, there is no beginning, there is no end. This God who even says in scriptures, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. He's trying to take God and put him in the limitations of the understanding of man. He's trying to fit God in this box of, of man, uh, of time, of, of space, of, of matter. He's trying to take this big, infinite God and fit him down in man's finite understanding. And that just won't work. Because if you can do that, he's not God. God clearly says in Scripture, there's some things you're not going to understand. And what does it matter what he was doing for, as he said, 87 trillion eons? Who cares? He's God. We don't have to know. God doesn't have to tell us what he did. We don't know what God did. For whatever reason, God didn't see it as important to tell us. But you know what I'm not going to do? Just because I don't understand something about God, I'm not going to try and take scriptures and try and fit something in that's not there and try and fit something in so I can better understand God. That's not going to happen. Okay, I'm not going to do that. Because what happens is I end up creating a false doctrine. It's kind of like this. Do you understand everything about the Trinity? Now, from the Bible, of course, we know the Trinity is true. We know about the Trinity. We can prove it from Scripture. We know that God is, you know, three in one, and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We understand the Trinity. We know it, but do we truly comprehend everything about it? Like, how does that work? Um, I'll be the first to raise my hand. No, I, I don't. I, I don't understand how it works. I, I mean, um, here you got Jesus dying on the cross with the sins of the world, and God the Father turns his back on the Son— and they're the same person. I mean, you tell me, brother. I, I don't know how it works out. But the point is, I know it's there in scripture. I'm not going to, to try and remove passages of scripture or twist them and say, well, there's really not a trinity because I can't understand it. I'm not going to do that. In the same sense, I'm not going to take that gap, supposedly, between Genesis 1 1 and 1 2 and try and fit something in to try and make God understandable to me. That's just not going to happen. Just not going to happen. And on that thought, here's what's crazier to believe. In my opinion, it's crazier to believe that God made all creation, couldn't find one single person worth saving on this prehistoric earth, couldn't find one single person worth saving, and put everything in the Ice Age for billions of years because it took God that long to figure out what he was going to do now. You say, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's what's being said in these gap theory theories. What you'll find in Scripture is every time God wanted to destroy the earth, there was always someone worth saving. Noah and the flood. Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses and the children of Israel. There was always a remnant. Always a remnant. That's unbelievable. And that's what I think is so crazy about this. They try to fit God in their their minds, and so they have to try and fit things in and explain things and try and make extra biblical stuff fit in. It doesn't work. When you try to do that, you simply go back to what we started with today. You create a false doctrine. And here's the thing. It really is dangerous. It really is a dangerous doctrine. And when you—false doctrine, that is—it really is dangerous because it's— let me give it to you this way. We had a church member that moved up from South Florida, joined our church here at Victory Springs. He bought a house and he needed a new roof on it. And so I went up with him and we were going to measure out. We were just going to order the sheet metal, put it on ourselves. And so I went up on the roof with him and we had one of those big real tape measures, you know, not, not like reel, real R E A L, but like real, like fishing reel, R E E L, you know, one of the big long, I don't know, 100 yard ones. And uh, so we got up there with that. And, you know, on the end of those little reels, those tape measures, is this a hook. It's about an inch long. And so he gave me the hook in and he said, I'm going to go down the other end and tell me when he got it ready and I'll, you know, mark down the measurement. And so he started walking across the roof. And so I knelt down and me being the smart guy that I was, I thought, well, surely the tape measure actually starts where the, you know, the actual tape measure is. Surely it doesn't start at the beginning of the hook. And so what I did is is I let the hook dangle over the edge and held down the very beginning of the actual tape measure down to there. And we got our measurements and got down and ordered the sheet metal. And it finally came in. And, you know, when we put everything on, there was a problem. I had measured wrong. The tape measure actually did start from the beginning of the hook. What an idiot. And um, you know what happened is because I would messed up the beginning, Everything in the middle and the end didn't line up. It was all an inch too long. You know what we had to do? We had to take every single piece of metal and cut it to try and make it fit. You say, what does that have to do with this? Remember how I said it's a dangerous doctrine? Why would I take a whole episode to deal with gap theory? Because it's dangerous. I don't want people to be in danger. When you begin to mess up the beginning of the Bible, What you'll find is, in order for things to fit in the middle of the Bible and the end of the Bible, you have to start chopping things. And folks, we don't have to do that with the Bible. Just take it as you read it, and it'll all line up together. Remember, this is a taught doctrine. You don't come to this without somebody teaching it to you. But here it is, a dangerous doctrine has believers behind it? Oh, my friend, don't get caught up in that. Because what you'll find is, as we said from the very beginning of this episode, if you allow this into your life, it will affect your beliefs on angels, on sons of God, on creation, on the flood, on the age of the earth, on evolution, on the beginning of sin, on how death entered the world. All of those things change just because you started messing with the beginning. So, if the, gap, if the gap theory is something that you want to believe, well, you can pull verses out of context. You can try and make it fit your belief. But don't be surprised if it starts messing up stuff in the middle, and the end, and pretty soon, nothing lines up anymore. Because that's what happens. You have just created a false doctrine. And it's as simple as that. As I said, if you wanted any of the other notes that I have on the gap theory, on some of the other passages they use, um, I can always send you my notes for those. Simply, you can contact us through our Facebook page or through sandycreekstrings.com and click the contact button. Here's the deal, though. I'll be honest with you. I have the notes. I'm more than willing to send them to you, but <laughs> we've already given enough proofs to prove the gap theory. If somebody doesn't believe after that point, you're not going to win them over, and so... That's just the reality of the situation, not to put a damper on it, but that's just the deal. But if you'd like those notes, I can send them to you. and We could talk about those a little bit more. But before we leave today, as always, I want to tell you Merry Christmas from Sandy Creek Stirrings. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas season. Looking forward to a great just a holiday season, spending time together. Celebrating holiday traditions, wonderful, wonderful Christmas season. So Merry Christmas to you from Sandy Creek Stirrings. And um, for today, for our outro, we will be playing a song from the CD entitled A Christ-Centered Christmas. Again, that's A Christ-Centered Christmas by Dr. Scott Coddle. And of course, uh, you can buy that CD at drscottcoddle.com. Again, that's drscottcoddle.com. Simply go to the online store and you can buy that CD at Christ-Centered Christmas. A great CD to have on hand, one that you want in your collection. You really do. Today, we're going to play from that CD, we're going to play the song Joy to the World. Amen. The Lord is come. So I hope you enjoy that song today. And as you continue your Christmas season, let me tell you this. Keep looking up, and keep stirred up for the cause of Christ.
1: Joy to the world, the Lord is
0: come.
1: Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare in room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven Let nature sing Joy to the world The Savior reigns Let men their songs employ While fields and floods, Rocks, hills and plains Repeat the sounding joy Repeat the sounding joy Repeat Sounding joy No more let sins and sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of Of, and his wonders love, of his love, as wonders of his love, as wonders of his, wonders love, wonders of of his, of his, his love. The glory of his righteousness, and wonders of his love. and wonders of